I want you to answer this question in your mind. How do you keep the joy for so long when anxiety seems like the thing to get, when anxiety seems like the thing that would easily set in? How do we, to you, keep the joy when anxiety seems like the natural thing to set in? That's a question we need to ask ourselves in our world today, isn't it? It's a question that every believer in every age has had to been able to ask, but God sees fit to order the world in such a way that there are some seasons that that is challenged more than others, and we are walking through that. I'm not saying that it won't be harder, but it is harder now than it was a decade ago, living in the world. We may have had personal challenges that gave us that, but living in the world, it is hard. Well, I don't know if you saw it this week. It made the rounds of the internet, so you probably did. But that's the question that a reporter asked three young women softball players from Oklahoma University. The reporter asked it in a press conference. It was broadcast on on CNN. And I, I think if you were watching it, you would have wondered whether somebody changed the channel to a church channel. Somebody changed the channel to some worship service. Because three young ladies gave answers that were theologically profound. They're true, and we know them, but they're giving evidence that they don't want to talk about softball. They want to talk about Jesus on national television. Now, if I'm not a follower of um, college softball, the, uh, the women's college softball, but Oklahoma University is kind of an anomaly. They, they have now won 53 games in a row and three national titles in a row. This is a set of women who know how to play the game of softball. And the, the full question that was asked was something like, you've had a target on your back. You have a win streak. Now, this press conference happened before they won their third national championship this last week. Um, but th- the question was asked, you've got your tar- this target on your back. You have this win streak. You have this constant pressure. And yet you remain joyful. How do you do that? Well, I'm not going to quote the whole um, interview. I urge you to find it. You will, you will worship in their answers. You will be probably brought to tears as you listen to them. But Grace Lyons was the first to speak, and her first answer was, the only way you can have a joy that doesn't fade away is from the Lord. Any other type of joy is only happiness that comes from circumstances and outcomes. True statement, is it not? Circumstances and outcomes are no way to have joy because when circumstances and outcomes change, where does your joy go? It goes away. And that's what she simply said, direct answer without even stopping to think about it, the direct answer to the reporter. She said, we've had success, but our joy wouldn't change even if we were full of failure. Softball can't bring you that joy because of how much failure comes with it and how much of a failure that the sport can be. Now that's our walk, isn't it? That's, that's our walk. It, our joy cannot come just from our obedience, although there is joy in being obedient to the Lord. The walk in this world, when sin is still hammering us, we as believers fail at times. We sin before our sovereign God. We sin against our sovereign God. And if it wasn't for the mercy and grace of Jesus given to us as we were united with him, we would have no hope. But since we do, we can have joy in this world. The second of the three young ladies, ladies, Jada Coleman, 
She tells of winning the College World Series in her freshman year. I don't know if she's a sophomore or a junior, but now she's getting ready to play in either her second or third that they would win. And she told the story about having, uh, she said she was so happy after they won the World Series, but I didn't feel joy. I didn't feel fulfilled. I had to have Christ. She told the story about the next day, after she had won this World Series, the pinnacle of her sport, the next day she didn't know what to do. She was unfulfilled. And that's how she realized she needed Jesus. Now, several of these players mentioned their coach and what the coach had taught them. These are discipled young ladies. These are young ladies who are discipled well in the scriptures, but they're giving us a model, not only of what it means to play college women's softball, but what it means to be a believer and walk in life. Finally, Alyssa Brito said this. She explained something that I guess all year long they they had a, a motion that they did across their eyes and pointing up and they would say, eyes up. And she said, you've seen us do this all year long, but in case you don't know what that means, that means that we are all to focus our eyes on Christ. No one can find fulfillment in an outcome, she says, echoing what Grace Lyons said first. She said, listen to this. Once I turned to Jesus and realized how he changed my outlook on life, not just softball, but understood how much I have to live for, and that living is to exemplify the kingdom. And I would add to that, exemplify the king of the kingdom. So we can replace softball, which was their primary goal in life at this point, with living the Christian life. This is, we are living the Christian life in all of the circumstances that hit us, all of the things that change, all of the things that we endure. If we have a kingdom mindset, that we are honoring Christ. We are honoring our calling. And she says this brings so much joy, joy no matter the outcome. Now Isaiah is writing to a people that need this, isn't he? He's writing in, remember, in our setting of Isaiah, he's writing in the, in the 8th century in the, and in the beginning of the 7th century B.C. But at chapter 40, there's a change from 1 to 39. We're really focused on the events of the end of the 8th century, the, the fall of the northern kingdom and, and the prophecies about the upcoming fall 150 years later of the southern kingdom. And yet in chapter 40, God shifts his gaze, his gaze still speaking to those of, of, the, of Isaiah's day, but now speaking specifically to those who would be in the southern kingdom in captivity in Babylon 140 or 50 years later. And so we are seeing a message given to the people around him that the people later on in captivity would have heard as a direct message to them. And being in captivity because you rebelled against your God is a time where you need to have your eyes up. It's a time where we need to have our eyes up because we are walking in this world and we are exiles in this world. We have a mission, we have a goal, we have a plan from our God for our Savior and to to carry out the mission that he began and that he gave us, but our eyes are on Christ in this world because our fellowship will be directly with him in the new heavens and new earth. So just as Isaiah had an audience who needs to hear this, we need to hear it. I hope you heard that these young ladies' identity was not in their talent. It was not in playing softball. It was not in being a university student. It was not in success. Their identity was wrapped up in Christ. And therefore, what they lived for was Christ as they are the best softball players in the land. 
And what we do and when we live is we live for Christ as we're enduring a world that makes no sense to us. I don't know what scripture passages drove them to have this, this idea of eyes up, but Colossians 3 says, if then you have been raised with Christ, which means if you're a believer, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Every time I sign a book that we give to high school or college graduates, I sign on behalf of our church with those verses. And I'm basically saying, keep your eyes up. Keep your eyes on Christ. The world is a twisty, turny place, but we keep our eyes on Christ. That's Isaiah's message. Your identity in captivity is not the fact that you're imprisoned. Your identity is in the fact that you are loved by your God. And that's the same thing for us today. The same message and the same encouragement needed. We'll turn, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 42 and let's stand together as we read our text. When we get into this, as we enter into this section of Isaiah, there are some longer texts before us because God is speaking in such a way to have a pattern. He has a pattern about reminding Israel of their failures, but also reminding them of his faithfulness to the covenant and challenging the idols that they would be tempted to worship and that the nations who had those idols, proving that they are no gods at all and that that cycle begins to happen for the next several chapters. So we're going to let that um, guide us in choosing our text here. But we're going to begin in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 18. And I'm going to read all the way through 43, verse 13. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. Yahweh was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not Yahweh against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, in whose law they would not obey? So he poured out on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle, and set, it set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. But now, Thus says Yahweh, he who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. 
For I am Yahweh, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Again, fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together, and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. For me, before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am Yahweh, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and I am God. Also, henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. Well, I hope you heard in my reading and saw in your text, there are three main sections um, in, this, in this passage of Scripture. And I've just summarized each one in one sentence because I think it captures the trajectory that God wants us to hear. And in these verses, we observe three unassailable certainties concerning salvation. Three unassailable certainties concerning salvation. That first unassailable certainty is found in 42.18 to the end of the chapter. Humans are spiritually deaf and blind, sinners in need of salvation. Now, it's interesting. Look at verse 18 of chapter 42. Verse 18 of 42 says, Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. And, the, and these are plurals here. So the call, we're going to see the idea of witnesses twice in our passage. One without mentioning the word witness and one mentioning it twice. But this is an unhealthy witness. This is a poor witness. Because all of those people who are blind and deaf are summoned together to come and make an observation. Now remember, we have had the promise that God will send a messianic savior, that he will send a servant that will carry out his bidding. And we met that servant first in chapter 42. And he will, he will carry out his bidding to open the eyes of the blind and to give them salvation. So all of those who have yet to hear of the, uh, and receive the salvation of Yahweh are all summoned together to make an observation. Well, what is that observation? Look at, look at the next verse. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? 
who is blind as my dedicated one or, or maybe my devoted one, the de- one devoted to me or the one in covenant with me, the one at peace with me. All those ideas are caught up in that phrase. Who is blind as my dedicated one or blind as the servant of Yahweh? Now, what have we learned about the servant so far? Remember that I said that the, the word servant in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah only occurs three times. It occurs once of Isaiah, once of Eliakim, the faithful student, uh, steward. Remember Eliakim and Shebna in chapter 22. Eliakim was a faithful servant. And once of David, who was the faithful king that God was acting in light of the promises he made to him. But then when we come to chapters 40 to 48, or 40 to 53, we find that the word servant in chapters 40 through 48 occurs 11 times, 10 of them about Israel being God's servant. Only one of them about being Jesus, the Messiah being God's servant. And we met that, that person, Jesus, the Messiah, the promised servant who would be obedient to all the commands of God in chapter 42. But then in chapter 49 of Isaiah, 49 to 53, seven more times the the name servant is mentioned. And out of those seven, one time is for Israel, the other six are about the servant who was obedient, the suffering servant, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So in this section between Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 53 especially, we have this constant contrast and reminder that Israel, God's people, are an unfaithful servant, but God will send and work salvation through his faithful servant. What the Israelites as the servant of God could not and would not do God does through his faithful servant, the Messiah. That contrast is all through here. So we don't hear the servant, the, the messianic servant mentioned in this passage, but he's, the work that he does and the, the, the things that he accomplishes are surely before us very strong. So look what it's saying about Israel here in chapter 42. They're blind, they're deaf. They're blind, they're blind. Three, four different ways, three blinds and one deaf, and they're put on display to all the other nations, all the non-Israelite nations, they're put on display to observe because God has a purpose here. Look at verse 20. A description of this blind servant, this blind messenger, this blind dedicated one, the one in covenant with God, Verse 20 says, he sees many things, but does not observe them. He, his ears are open, but he does not hear. Now turn back, keep your finger here and turn back to chapter 6. A long time ago, we covered chapter 6. And remember, after Isaiah's call and the vision that he had, remember what God told him his ministry would look like? Turn back to chapter 6, verse 8. I heard the voice of Yahweh saying, whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Remember, this is the message that he is to give. He says, say to these people, 
Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of these people dull or fat, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, that is repent, and be healed. Isaiah says, how long, O Lord? How long is that the message I am to give? And he said, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, And the land is a desolate waste. And Yahweh removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, remember hope, right? The remnant. Though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So the message is, go preach and tell them to listen but don't hear. Tell them to see but don't understand. And that's the message to come, but there will be a remnant because God is the one who will get the glory in what is done for his people. His people, the nation of Israel, have rebellious hearts against him and that's the way they're brought all the way through. We can find the same language if we were to, we're not gonna take the time, but Deuteronomy chapter 29, before Moses, Moses is standing there and, and God says, listen, you've seen, Moses tells the people from God, you've seen all of these different miracles, these signs and wonders by God and let you still, and yet you still refuse to believe. But God is going to act on your behalf. We see this constantly through the Old Testament. So this is, this is what we're seeing. We're seeing a people that God has set apart for his own glory and God is about redeeming a remnant from the disobedient people. And that's what we see here being developed. They see, but they do not observe. They, their ears are open, but they do not hear. And that thought is going to be developed as, as this, uh, these few verses go on. Verse 21 The Lord, Yahweh, was pleased for his righteousness' sake. Okay, so we're about to hear something that pleases God. Now, shouldn't our ears perk up? Something that pleases God, and he does for his own righteousness' sake. To to broadcast his righteousness out to the world. And what is that? To magnify his law, the Torah, and make it glorious. The Torah, the the divine instructions that God gives to his people so that they know how to love God and love each other. That God was pleased to reveal that to them and it reveals his righteousness. The law is based in the character of God. God's teaching is based in his own character and he expects that to bear fruit. Remember the the parables of the vineyard where one vineyard did bear fruit and later on we saw a vineyard who does not bear fruit. What was the expectation from from the vineyard owner, the planter, who is God himself? It was that they would bear fruit. None of us plants a garden not expecting there to be fruit. It's just, that's, that's against the ways of the world and it's against the ways of God. He expects fruit. Turn to another place. We're gonna do some remembering here this morning. Not many. Keep your finger in uh, Isaiah 42 and turn to, back to chapter two of Isaiah. Chapter two, back when you were probably 16 years old when we covered this. Remember the, the introduction to the introduction in chapter one and then beginning with chapter two, giving us the message that leads up to his call. Look at chapter two, verse one. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains 
and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come to it and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Now, in the latter days, that's the days that we live in. Remember? The days between Jesus' first and second coming. So the mountain of the Lord is magnified and glorified above all the other mountains in the coming of the Messiah, the suffering servant, Jesus himself. And he is the exemplary person who obeys the law. And all of the nations in this prophecy, God expects to come and find out from Israel in the Old Testament language, from God's people, how to live and what God says. That's how he glorifies himself for his own righteousness. When God speaks, he's expecting people to listen. If there's not listening, there are curses. There's judgment. That's the promise that was made to Israel all the way through the Old Testament. I will be your God and you will be my people. And when I speak, you listen and obey and you will be blessed. But if you don't, you will be cursed. And he promises to bring those curses upon his people. And all the way through the Old Testament, we see Israel being disobedient and God still, because he is faithful to the covenant. Now, what part of the covenant is he faithful to? The curses following disobedience. He has to be faithful to his own character. But he also redeems a remnant. And that remnant, through the whoop and war for the Old Testament, is to lead us to whom? Christ himself. The one who comes to fulfill all of those prophecies in the Old Testament. The seed that will overcome Satan. The, 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 the one seed that all the promises to Abraham is invested in. And all of us in union with him receive those blessings. So this is all the, what the theology that we know is brought into these first few verses. Preparing us that, we're, that God is expecting fruit. Back in chapter 42, verse 21, he's going to make it glorious. Magnify his law and make it glorious for his righteousness sake. Now, anytime we see the word but that comes in scripture, we're, we're a little bit excited, right? Because one way, and this, this is the key to living the Christian life so often, isn't it? We're looking at our circumstances and the biblical answer is to say, but God. I know what my life looks like, but God has said otherwise. But oftentimes when we're walking by the wisdom of the world, when we're not walking by the wisdom of God, I know what God says, but I. And we get those flipped around. So when we see the word but at the beginning of verse 22, we're a little bit excited, but also we're a little bit fearful, aren't we? Look at the text. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. This is that description of them being captivity in, in Babylon because they would not listen and God has extended his judgment against them. Now you say, how do you know that? Well, keep reading. The question from God through Isaiah in verse 23, who among you will give ear to this? Who among you will attend and listen for the time to come? Who will listen to the truth that God is saying through Isaiah? Who will listen for what will happen in the future? Who will do that? And then we get the answer, verse 30, 24. Who will listen from the people? But the people are in a situation because Yahweh has done it. Now anything Yahweh has done and Yahweh is giving the opportunity to undo for his own glory, we should listen to what he says. 
And this is what begins in verse 20, 24. Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? That's referencing chapter 20 or verse 22. Was it not Yahweh against whom we have sinned? Now, this language of being plundered, we've seen throughout Isaiah already. Remember Isaiah's sons? Remember those, those weirdly named sons that he had? Meir, Shalal, Hajbaz. That Baz at the end of that is the word for plunder, for, for prey. And so we've already seen this. It's been used of Assyria in chapter 10, verse 6, um, as they come and plunder the northern kingdom. It's used in chapter 39, verse 6, to talk about what the Babylonians are going to do to the southern kingdom. So this is a common theme that we've had, that God says this is going to happen. And he uses language also. Remember, earlier in Isaiah, when the, the prophet was talking about the northern kingdom being taken off into captivity by the Assyrians, but he also said that captivity of the northern kingdoms, that, that movement of God will come and it will come to the southern kingdom as well. And it will what? It will be like flooding waters that will come up to your neck. So this is not language that confuses us. It's not language that is um, surprising to us. Now, why did it happen? Look at the last phrases of, of verse 24. It's very interesting. Was it not Yahweh against whom we have sinned in whose ways they would not walk and whose law they would not obey. Did you wonder why that pronoun changes? Did you wonder why those changed there? I wondered why they changed there because some commentators didn't even mention it. Others said, well, it's just Old Testament Hebrew poetry and Hebrew poetry can take those kinds of licenses, which I think is true. But sometimes I think it's the message is coming through for us that helps us understand the passage. So here's Isaiah saying, is anyone here going to listen? There's judgment here because God has done it. And he's done it for these reasons. Will you listen? Will you listen today? Will you listen for the future? And what does he say? Against whom, this, talking about Yahweh, against whom we have sinned, Wonder if Yahweh or if, if Isaiah is speaking about him and the remnant, the obedient Israelites, the ones who are endeavoring to be obedient, but they still sinned at times. You and I, as believers, are endeavoring to be obedient, yes? And we sin, yes? So we would be the ones that say, Yahweh is in charge of all this. Yahweh has redeemed me. I'm being, I am under the, the um, discipline of God because he loves me because I've sinned and he's coming after me. And we as believers can collectively say, we have sinned, amen? But we don't want to collectively say as believers, we would not walk. We would not obey. There's a mindset change here that I think God is saying, listen, there's a remnant who have sinned, but are, then Isaiah is appealing to to listen, and there is another group of people who are set in their disobedience. They're set in their ways. Now, just to fill in some blanks here in our theology, remember that Paul tells us that not all Israel is true Israel, amen? That there are some that are physically part of the nation of Israel, but their hearts are not circumcised. That, that Old Testament language to talk about God's movement in our hearts and our movement to obey him. And so there were some whose hearts were not circumcised and some who were. And those who had circumcised hearts are the ones who might sin, but they are not patternistically against God, they are not in constant, willful, 24-7 rebellion. And I think that's what we're to see here. 
We are to see that there are some who have sinned and there is judgment that's coming on the nation even though God, we will see very soon, will intends to save people out of this nation. He has a plan. So it is God who's acted, puts them under judgment. Why? Because they've sinned. They've been in, in constant and utter rebellion. They would not walk according to what he has said. They would not obey according to what he has said. Literally, they wouldn't listen And in that scriptural, especially Old Testament way to use that word listen, you cannot listen if you're not obeying. If you're not obeying, you're not listening. You might be hearing, but you're not listening. And that's the assault that that, um, God is dealing with here. So what does he do? Verse 25, he poured on him the heat of his anger, the might of the battle, set him on fire all around. That Old Testament language to say that God kindled his wrath against his people. Why? Because he's faithful. He is a covenantal, faithful God. He is faithful to the covenant, and that's what he promised. Now, if we had to shut Isaiah here and walk away, we'd walk away as a pretty defeated people, would we not? We'd walk away and say, well, there's no hope. Because even good people who love God, who claim Christ, who seem to be in union with him, sin. And if the response from God is always and only judgment, then we have no hope. But what have we learned in Isaiah? When God raises himself up, when God visits, the language is used, when he visits, he is visiting for judgment against his enemies and salvation for his people. Remember, over and over there's judgment and within the judgment there's salvation for God's people. And we've, we've looked at this so many different ways through Isaiah already, but we are a people, if you are in Christ this morning, if you have trusted him as your Lord and Savior and you are united with him, you will never suffer his wrath. Amen? Say amen for me. Do you understand that? The wrath of God, if you are a believer, will never be placed on you. Why? Because God was in a good mood one day and winked and and ran a blue light special and you ran over to it and bought your salvation? No, because he placed his wrath upon his son. And his son bore your wrath if you are in Christ. His son paid the penalty of death for your sin if you are in Christ. So as a believer, we will never experience his wrath. But we walk in a world that is experiencing his judgment and wrath every day, do we not? And so what is our role? Now sometimes, there are times that we choose to go our own way as a believer and Hebrews tells us that God disciplines us. It's the loving discipline of the Father, not the angry wrath of a scorned God for those who are in Christ. And so we need to understand as we read these verses what happens in Christ for us who are believers Now, in the Old Testament economy, the nation moved as the nation, and God is constantly pursuing the remnant, those who he intends to save, those who have circumcised hearts. And beginning in chapter 43, we start to see what God thinks of his people and the status that his people have in God's eyes because of nothing but him pursuing his own glory. So beginning in chapter 43, we have seen that humans are spiritually deaf and blind, sinners in need of salvation. Beginning in chapter 43, 1 through 7, God is gracious and has provided the salvation that they need. But now, 
Now here is a better but, right? This is better. Uh, but before, but God revealed himself. He, he magnified his law so it would exemplify his righteousness. But some of the people, most of the people turned their backs and refused to listen, refused to obey. And in the light of them refusing to listen and refu- refusing to obey, God is not done working. But now... It reminds us of, of chapters like Ephesians chapter 2. I'm, I could probably quote this, but I know that I'll trip up on it. So let me just read this to you. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, You were dead in, your, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now that's the description of every human being before they come to Christ, amen? That's what you and I were before we came to Christ. If you're here this morning and you have not received Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's how you're walking. According to the wisdom of the world, the passions of your own flesh, you're drug around by the wisdom of the world, it's not a great place to be. But we have the, the most wonderful but God statement that follows after this. But God... Being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, mark that, even when you were dead, you don't clean yourself up and then come to Christ, do you? You come to Christ as you are, and Christ cleans you up through his blood and his perfect righteousness. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. You were, you were dead in your trespasses and sins before, but after Christ, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. And you know the rest of it. The but God passages are what give us the hope that God is about more than us. He's about himself. And that's what we're about to see here. Look in Isaiah 43. Look what it says about his people. But now says Yahweh, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. Now remember, a few weeks ago we looked at this O Jacob, O Israel, and in this little passage, this section of scripture between 40 and 48, we find this 19 times and not in the rest of it. This contrast between Jacob and Israel, that, that what God does in redeeming his people. So Jacob, the usurper, that's what his name means, the heel grabber, the usurper. Jacob wrestles with God, and God shows his faithfulness to Jacob, changes his name to Israel, which means he who wrestles with God, or God who wrestles, changes his name, and also reiterates the promises given to Abraham to him, reiterates that to him. So there's a before God and an after God. And we hear that in almost every one of these 19 occurrences of Jacob and Israel. We definitely hear it here. He who created you, he who formed you. Now mark that, created and formed. It's talking about them as a nation here. Jump down to verse seven. Whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Brackets these verses one through seven. One is a creation for Israel as a people who are God's people. The ending is the redeemed individual 
in Israel that he has created with a new creation. And in the middle of all this, we find all of these wonderful words. Look at verse one again. Fear not, two instances of fear not with reasons why. Why would they be fearing? They've been in captivity. They've been in another land, separated from Jerusalem, separated from the way that they were commanded to do worship and do their sacrifices. They might be at this point after probably the end of 70 years, they might be thinking God has forsaken us. Maybe we're never going to make it home. Maybe we're going to be assimilated completely into this land. And in the midst of this, as God's getting ready to act and he's making his promises that he will act, he says, once, fear not, and a second time, fear not. Look at the first one. Why? Three reasons. Four, I have redeemed you. Isn't that wonderful? You used to be a slave to sin and in Christ, and we'll fill in the Christ part, but I, I need you to understand, don't listen to this as an old covenant believer. Listen to this as a new covenant believer. One who is in Christ. One who is having Christ dangled before them this morning to turn to. You have been redeemed. You've been redeemed in Christ from sin, the slavery of sin. You are no longer enslaved to sin. You now are enslaved to God. That wonderful, sweet language, it didn't cost you anything, but there was a price to be paid. In redemption, there's always a price to be paid. Somebody needs paid. And in redemption in the spiritual realm, your sin was paid for by Christ so that you can be redeemed and brought into that relationship with God. Secondly, I have called you by name. God, the creator of the universe, has looked down and called you by name. And in a minute, we're going to see how that name is even expanded, that now you are called by his name. How sweet is that? God, you are not insignificant to God. He has called you by name and individually. It, it's, if you have grown up in church and you think the fact that your mom and dad go to church, or you, even if you're an adult and you go to church and you're always in church, that doesn't make you redeemed. It's just what the redeemed do. A woodworker who takes wood and makes it into a chair. Wood isn't a chair until the woodworker does something with it. You're a human being and you are not his until he moves in your life and you are living according to his precepts. He calls you by name. But look at the third thing. You are mine. You feel the intimacy there? You're my, you're my possession. I, I love you. You're my possession. I, I'm not, not, only, not only are you mine, but if you are mine, then all of what I have is yours. Not only if you are mine, that it's not just that, okay, now I can say I'm his, but you can say that you're his in all of his fullness. <clears throat> One of the things that Ernie prayed in his prayer out of that wonderful book of, of prayers, if you don't have the Valley of Vision, I encourage you to get it. it. It will inspire your devotional life as you pray. But one of the lines said something to the effect that he's not diminished as he fills us up. He's not diminished as he blesses us. So God is infinite. And when you are his, the New Testament says we are seated in the heavenly places with him with all the spiritual blessings that are Christ's. These are wonderful promises. Therefore, we should fear not. When we're walking in this world that confuses us and evil is abounding, and let's just summarize all of this to put it in a biblical perspective. We're walking in a world being judged by God. Everything that we see is judgment by God. It's not that the world is running in such a direction that God might judge it. The world is running in such a direction because God has judged it. But it's not final because Christ is not returned. So the church still has a mission, which we'll get to in a moment. 
But we don't fear that because we know that he's sovereign. And in the midst of that world, we've been redeemed. We've been called by name by the creator of the universe and we are his. We are in his possession. But look at verse two. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. Now, what is that speaking about? Now, the fire and the flame, if, you're, if you know your biblical history and you're thinking of Daniel with his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that walked through the, through the fire, and that is in the captivity in Babylon, well, maybe I think they were thinking about this verse, but I don't think this verse is thinking about them. I think this verse is using the same language that was used about God's judgment in chapter 42, 25. When you are walking through this, if you are mine, you need to fear not. You need to have no fear in this because I am with you. When you're walking through all of this, I'll be with you. Why? Because you are mine. I've called you by name. I've redeemed you. When you're walking through the rivers, they won't overwhelm you. They'll only come up to your neck in the language of Isaiah. When you walk through the fire, you won't be burned. The flames will not consume you. Why? Because when I am executing judgment on my enemies, I'm also redeeming my people. And you may experience a world that's under judgment, but I'm in the process of redemption for my people, for my own glory. So fear not. And that's the command to us in this world. We don't fear this world. We don't fear anything that's going on. Now, I don't know about you, but you, you may have to get rid of some of your news broadcast. You may have to get rid of some of your news feed and some of the things that you read, because when you read that all the time, what you're tempted to do? Fear, despair, doom, despair, and agony on me. That's the way we feel in this. But the Bible says fear not, so get rid of that and replace it with this. Seems like common sense to me, right? But how hard is that to do? Figure out who you're going to listen to, the wisdom of the world or God's wisdom. You've heard much about this in the last several months from both Luke um, and Buster in 1 Corinthians about the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of man. We've been encouraged to trust in God and his wisdom as shown to us in Christ as a means to walking in this world. And that's what Isaiah is saying here. Look at verse three. For I am Yahweh your God. There it is again. I am the covenant one. That Lord in all caps, the covenantal name of God, Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. Now we've seen that many times in Isaiah. We'll see it yet again. It's one of the phrases that unify all three sections in Isaiah that God has has chosen to describe himself as one who is of Israel, but he's also the Holy One, the Holy, Holy One. So to be in union with him is the way that the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints obey the command, be holy, for I am holy because he is the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, the one who has given you salvation. So you are to fear not. Then he gives this ransom language. We've been redeemed. I give Egypt as your ransom. Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Now what is that talking about? Well, the, the water about, the language about the water and the flood is automatically going to bring the children of Israel back to the deliverance, back to the Exodus, right? And how God delivered them. And there was an exchange there because the waters parted and God's people walked over on dry ground and then they consumed the Egyptians and their army. And God was about doing what he always does. He's judging his enemies and saving his people, it's a common theme of scripture. So how were they, how is anyone ransomed? 
through the sacrifice of another. How are you and I ransomed? Through the sacrifice of Christ. There is no ransom from sin without being submitted to repenting of sin and trusting in Christ, the one who died for your sins. So it's always a picture of the ransom of leading us toward our kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ himself. But he continues, our hearts are beginning to fill even more. Verse 4, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, I love you. This is the God who created the universe. And you are precious in his eyes. You are precious in his eyes. He loves you. Now this is that covenant faithful, covenant affection that God has for his people. And it is special for those who are in Christ. It is special. There is a way that God loves the entire world. Amen. You all learned this verse first back in Bible school many years ago. For God so loved, he loved the world in this way, that he gave his only begotten son, his only unique son, his only son, so that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. We all learned that verse. And in that way, the son being given to the world was the way that God loved the world. But the world looks at the son and what chooses darkness rather than the light that the sun comes in. So there is a special love that comes from God to his people. There is a love where God, that Paul can say that Paul can say that God's words were Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. There is a love that says, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He gave, he gave his life for the church, for those who would be in Christ, those who would believe. So we as believers, we have the affection of God who created the universe. He loves us. Now, if that's true of us, why would we need love anywhere else more than that? Why would we need to find our satisfaction, or as these young ladies said, our joy anywhere, but in the fact that we are loved with an everlasting love, as Jeremiah, I believe, says, loved with an everlasting love by the God who created the universe. He created us, but he's also redeemed us. He's also given us life in his son. You see why we don't fear? It doesn't matter what the world does to us. Take it all away. Anything I might find satisfaction with in this world, take it all away. Why? Because my Redeemer loves me. His affections are set upon me. In his eyes, I am honored. Now, how how are we honored? We are honored because we are in Christ, and he sets his affections on his Son. It's his Son's righteousness credited to our account when we come to Christ. These are wonderful Um, heart-enlarging words for us that propel us into the world with a different vision than everyone else has because we are motivated by an otherworldly love and an otherworldly joy. You are precious, verse 4, in my eyes, and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, people in exchange for your life. A reiteration of what he said in verse 3. We've already covered those ideas. Look at verse 5. The second fear not. Why? For I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name. Now we have moved here in the language... uh, 
Yes, there is a fulfillment in Isaiah of the, those in captivity being released from Babylon. Amen? That is, that's before our eyes. But this is a fuller picture of salvation, is it not? These are men and women from all over the world, even the nations that are mentioned. They're all over the place. God says, no one is going to be left behind here. I will gather them all. If you are mine, I will not let you go. This is why Jesus says, all that the Father gives me, I will not lose one. Because we are safe in the Father's arms. Look at verse 7. Everyone who is called, not by your name, but by his name. Everyone who's called by my name. That's who I'm going to gather. And now he reiterates what he started with. Whom I created for my glory, and I formed and made. This is the answer, right? This is the answer to everyone who would say, now wait a minute, are you saying that God only saves those that he has chosen? And I'm saying, yes, that's what God is saying. God from the foundation of the world has, has chosen a people for himself. And the whole storyline of the Bible is that he is intent on, on regaining them, on redeeming them through his son. And he's made that decision for, and, and the question is, well, why? Why would he choose some and not others? That's not the question. The question is, why does he choose anyone? Yes. We're all offensive to God. We are all sinners. We all have sinned and deserve his condemnation. And he would not be God if he didn't condemn us. He, he would not be God if he did not bring his wrath against us. So it's not a question of why did he choose some. The question is, why did he choose any? For the praise of the glory of his own grace, says Ephesians three times. Says Isaiah, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. We can take that for my glory and just put it over all those phrases. God does it for his own glory. And we are the recipients if we are in Christ. Not because of what we have done, but for everything that he has done to carry out his plans that he made from the foundation of the world. Now, if we can't understand that about our status with God, the affection that he has for his people, and walk into the world and live in a different way than those who don't have that, then we haven't understood. And that's the purpose, which we'll see in just a minute. This revelation is so that we do understand. Well, humans are spiritually deaf and blind. They're sinners in need of salvation. God is gracious and has provided salvation, but also Yahweh's witness. Witnesses are evidence that no one is powerful enough to overturn his salvation. Beginning in verse 8, we're entering back into familiar territory, aren't we? We're entering into that courtroom scene where God is calling those who are of other nations and his own people, calling them into the courtroom and calling them in to make their case. Uh, somebody mentioned in the Sunday school class uh, that meets out here this morning a quote from one of the commentators that, that something to the effect that God is not fa- afraid of a fair trial. He, he has no fear of a trial being fair because he is the one who is truth. He is the one who does what he says he will. And remember, a couple of chapters ago, God called all the nations and their gods and said, okay, tell me why the things of the past have happened. Crickets chirped. Nobody could do that. They could tell them that it happened, but they couldn't tell the reasons. God says, that happened because I intended these things to come from it, and he proves it. And then he says, okay, if you can't tell me why the past happened, tell me what's going to happen in the future. Crickets. Crickets. 
Nothing. So we're entering into that kind of a a setting again in a courtroom where God is calling. But now he's calling witnesses who who have received his grace and putting them as exhibit one to prove who he is. Look at verse 8. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the people assemble. So all of them are going to assemble into God's court. And the question is asked, who among them can declare this and show us the former things? There's that question that was asked in chapter 41. Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. So bring the the witnesses that they are the ones who should be worshipped. And let them hear and say, it is true. And then he turns and says, you, my people, are my witnesses, declares Yahweh. And my servant, whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. I've chosen you and I've demonstrated who I am so that you would know who I am. And that's the charge brought against Israel throughout the Old Testament. You have seen the signs and wonders, but you refuse to believe. And God is bringing them forward not only for them to know, but for the world to know. This is where you and I fit into this text. We are his witnesses. Acts 1.8, he sends people out as witnesses to the world. That's where we follow as witnesses to the world. We have to have something to say, but we also have to have a life that looks like what the something to say is. Amen? We can't go out and witness the gospel when our life looks like the rest of the world, walking in fear. Well, why should I listen to what you have to say? You're more fearful than I am. Why should I listen to what you have to say? You pursue more sin than I do. Why should I listen to what you have to say? You're angrier, less joyful than I am. Fill in the blanks. We are the people who walk through that world because this is where we stand in Christ. This is our identity and nothing can shake that. Well, he's brought God's people in before the world to prove, the end of verse 10, before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I I am Yahweh. We're going to see that phraseology again next week, and we'll address it more fully then in verse 25, where he says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. I, I am Yahweh. I am the covenant God. And besides me, there is no Savior. If you want salvation, you come through God. And my call to you today, if you are unsaved, your path to the Father is through the Son. There is no other way. There's no other name among, uh, uh, in heaven or on earth by which we must be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. Anyone who comes to the Father must come through the Son. It is the Son who is the exact representation of the being of the Father who is sent to be the full revelation of the Father's will. And Jesus has come and lived and died according to the Old Testament scriptures and he's raised from the dead to guarantee our resurrection and he's seated at the right hand of the Father so that we have all the blessings in the heavenly places and listen, we have them now. We don't wait until then. They're not going to be perfected until then but we have them now. We are seated with Christ in the heavenlies and all his blessings are ours. This is how salvation, and there is salvation in no other God but the Father sending the Son through the power of the Spirit and the Son rising again as the one who lived perfectly, satisfying God's wrath, dying on the cross for our sin and guaranteeing our resurrection, both spiritual now and physical in the future when he returns again to be with him forever. 
This is what we have looking forward to. Why would we get caught up in anything in this world for our joy? We'll look back. Verse 12. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. In other words, you had no God who could do this. And you are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and I am God. Also, henceforth I am he, there is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn back? There's the guarantee. If God has sent his son to redeem, then those who redeemed will never be lost. Because it's been the foundational plan from the Father from the beginning. This is encouragement in our walk. We were created by a God who loves us. Now listen, that message resonates in our world today. I mean, it's, it's very popular now to find things that are artisan, right? That are, that are artisan. I love to bake sourdough bread. It's called artisan bread when you make it by your hands. And that's all artisan means, that you make it by your hands. We have many makers, as we will see next week, many makers in our, con- in our congregation. People resonate with that. Our God creates us that way, uniquely with his affection, with his own hands, with his own desires, and he sends us out in the world with his own um, message and his own plan for us, our own marching orders, and that resonates in the world. People want to be shown affection. Why do you think people want likes on Facebook and more followers and more YouTube videos to be seen and all that? They want people to affirm them. We have a God who in Christ affirms his people in ways that the world could never do. Our message to the world around us rings true to those that God are drawing unto himself. And it cannot be negated by our life. And it also inspires us to run the race before us. Run it as if we're trying to earn the prize. The upward call of Christ Jesus, that glory that he has shown when we run obedient. I I read a story that uh, Brian Chappell Um, used as an illustration in a recent book where he said a friend of his was a marathon runner. And that marathon runner was getting getting ready to run a marathon that was going to be hard. The ending of it especially. I don't know what was hard about it, but something about the ending was very hard. And the ending of that marathon was challenging to him before he even started it. And so what he did, true story, what he did was when he filled out his application, he put his name as Christian. It wasn't his name. But he put his name as Christian because he knew that in all the marathons that he ran, that last little bit, all the people on the side of the road are reading the name or having the name be, being um, announced and put on a bulletin board as someone, as someone is finishing. And all the people start, start chiming in, come on, Christian, you can do it. You can do it. You can make this to the end. And they start using the name that's there. And he knew that the greatest motivation to get him across that finish line was to have all the people, knowing or unknowing, calling to him as a Christian a Christ follower, depending on the strength of Christ. And he did that, and as he came to the ending, ending, all the people are yelling encouragement to him as a Christian. And that's exactly what we have in Christ. Walking and running the race in this world, the witnesses, the great cloud of witnesses, if they were able, to, if we were able to hear them speaking, they would be calling to us as a follower of Christ in this world. Now, this world is crazy, isn't it? Every day we wake up to something new that we, couldn't, that we couldn't believe, even though we went to bed the night before saying, I couldn't believe that, but I think it's going to get worse. We get up and it's worse, and we go, I can't believe that. Is it going to get worse? And every day it does. And we need to remind ourselves of the truth 
that God is sovereign over this world and he has sent us into this world. Not to hide from the world, but into the world. Telling us that we will be persecuted, but also telling us that if you get drawn before the magistrates, as we heard earlier, then I am going to give you what to say. And this world, it's a blip. It's a blip on the radar. So constantly in our discipleship, we are encouraging each other who we are in Christ. We don't have to just say, well, you shouldn't do this, and you shouldn't do this, and you shouldn't do this. We tell each other who we are in Christ, and guess what's happened when we get a hold of that? We won't do this, and we won't do this, and we won't do this. We will start acting in accordance with who we are, which is the way the scriptures call us to obedience. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for your word, for the gift of Christ, for the fact that our identity is firmly rooted in his person and work. And we pray, Father, not only that we would rejoice in the way that we are loved and that we are precious to our God, but that we would rejoice that he allows us, Father, should it be his will to suffer for him, to conform us into his likeness in the act of suffering, but also to conform us into his likeness in the act of preaching and in the act of loving and in the act of showing compassion and in the act of calling truth, truth, all of those things. That's where we find our joy, by being empowered by your spirit, obedient to your son, looking forward to an eternity with fellowship uh, with our triune God, face to face with Christ our Savior. So we are grateful for these things, and may it be so and growing in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.